Welcome to Fantasties, a fairy romance for men and women by George MacDonald. This is Chapter 4, Part 1. When Bale is at highest, Boot is nighest. Ballad of Sir Aldingar. By this time, my hostess was quite anxious that I should be gone. So with warm thanks for their hospitality, I took my leave and went my way through the little garden towards the forest. Some of the garden flowers had wandered into the wood and were growing here and there along the path, but the trees soon became too thick and shadowy for them. I particularly noticed some tall lilies which grew on both sides of the way with large, dazzlingly white flowers set off by the universal green. It was now dark enough for me to see that every flower was shining with a light of its own. Indeed, it was by this light that I saw them, an internal, peculiar light proceeding from each and not reflected from a common source of light as in the daytime. This light sufficed only for the plant itself and was not strong enough to cast any but the faintest shadows around it or to illuminate any of the neighbouring objects with other than the faintest tinge of its own individual hue. From the lilies above mentioned, from the campanulas, from the foxgloves and every bell-shaped flower, curious little figures shot up their heads, peeped at me and drew back. They seemed to inhabit them, as snails their shells. But I was sure some of them were intruders and belonged to the gnomes or goblin fairies who inhabit the ground and earthy, creeping plants. From the cups of arum lilies, creatures with great heads and grotesque faces shot up like jack-in-the-box and made grimaces at me, or rose slowly and slyly over the edge of the cup and spouted water at me, slipping suddenly back like those little soldier crabs that inhabit the shells of sea snails. Passing a row of tall thistles, I saw them crowded with little faces which peeped every one from behind its flower and drew back as quickly. And I heard them saying to each other, evidently intending me to hear, but the speaker always hiding behind his tuft when I looked in his direction. Look at him! Look at him! He has begun a story without a beginning and it will never have any end! <laughs> Look at him! But as I went further into the wood, these sights and sounds became fewer, giving way to others of a different character. A little forest of wild hyacinth was alive with exquisite creatures who stood nearly motionless with drooping necks holding each by the stem of her flower and swaying gently with it whenever a low breath of wind swung the crowded floral belfry. In like manner, though differing of course in form and meaning, stood a group of harebells, like little angels waiting, ready till they were ready to go on some yet unknown message. In darker nooks, 
by the mossy roots of the trees or in little tufts of grass, each dwelling in a globe of its own green light, weaving a network of grass and shadows, glowed the glowworms. They were just like the glowworms of our own land, for they are fairies everywhere, worms in the day and glowworms at night when their own can appear, and they can be themselves to others as well as themselves. But they had their enemies here. For I saw great strong-armed beetles hurrying about with most unwieldy haste, awkward as elephant calves, looking apparently for glowworms. For the moment a beetle espied one through what it was a forest of grass or an underwood of moss, it pounced upon it and bore it away in spite of its feeble resistance. Wondering what their object could be, I watched one of the beetles, and then I discovered a thing I could not account for. But it is no use trying to account for things in fairyland. And one who travels there soon learns to forget the very idea of doing so, and takes everything as it comes, like a child who, being in a chronic condition of wonder, is surprised at nothing. What I saw was this. Everywhere, here and there over the ground, lay little dark-looking lumps of something more like earth than anything else, and about the size of a chestnut. The beetles hunted in couples for these, and having found one, one of them stayed to watch it, while the other hurried to find a glowworm. By signals, I presume between them, the latter soon found its companion again. Then they took the glowworm and held its luminous tail to the dark, earthly pellet. When lo, it shot up into the air like a skyrocket, seldom, however, reaching the height of the highest tree. Just like a rocket, too, it burst in the air and fell in a shower of the most gorgeously coloured sparks of every variety of hue, golden and red and purple and green and blue and rosy fires crossed and intercrossed with each other beneath the shadowy heads and between the columnar stems of the forest trees. They never used the same glowworm twice, I observed, but let him go, apparently uninjured by the use they had made of him. In other parts, the whole of the immediately surrounding foliage was illuminated by the interwoven dances in the air of splendidly coloured fireflies, which sped hither and thither, turned and twisted, crossed and recrossed, entwining every complexity of intervolved motion. Here and there, whole mighty trees glowed with an emitted phosphorescent light. You could trace the very course of the great roots in the earth by the faint light that came through, and every twig and every vein on every leaf was a streak of pale fire. All this time, as I went through the wood, I was haunted with the feeling that other shapes, more like my own size and mean, were moving about at a little distance on all sides of me. But as yet I could discern none of them, although the moon was high enough to send a great many of her rays down between the trees, and these rays were unusually bright and sight-giving, notwithstanding she was only a half-moon. I constantly imagined, however, that forms turned 
and that they only became invisible or resolved themselves into other woodland shapes the moment my looks were directed towards them. However this may have been, except for this feeling of presence, the woods seemed utterly bare of anything like human companionship. Although my glance often fell on some object, which I fancied to be human form, for I soon found that I was quite deceived, as the moment I fixed my regard on it, it showed plainly that it was a bush or a tree or a rock. Soon a vague sense of discomfort possessed me. With variations of relief, this gradually increased, as if some evil thing were wandering about in my neighbourhood, sometimes nearer and sometimes further off, but still approaching. The feeling continued and deepened until all my pleasure in the shows of various kinds that everywhere betokened the presence of the merry fairies vanished by degrees and left me full of anxiety and fear, which I was unable to associate with any definite object whatever. At length, the thought crossed my mind with horror. Can it be possible that the ash is looking for me? Or that... In his nightly wanderings, his path is gradually verging towards mine. I comforted myself, however, by remembering that he had started quite in another direction, one that would lead him, if he kept it, far apart from me, especially as for the last two or three hours I had been diligently journeying eastward. I kept on my way, therefore, striving by direct effort of the will against the encroaching fear, and to this end, occupying my mind as much as I could with other thoughts. I was so far successful that, although I was conscious, if I yielded for a moment I should be almost overwhelmed with horror, I was yet able to walk right on for an hour or more. What I feared I could not tell. Indeed, I was left in a state of the vaguest uncertainty as regarded the nature of my enemy, and knew not the mode or object of his attacks. For somehow or other, none of my questions had succeeded in drawing a definite answer from the dame in the cottage. How then to defend myself I knew not, not even by what sign I might with certainty recognise the presence of my foe. For as yet this vague though powerful fear was all the indication of danger I had. To add to my distress, the clouds in the west had risen nearly to the top of the skies, and they and the moon were travelling slowly towards each other. Indeed, some of their advanced guard had already met her, and she had begun to wade through a filmy vapour that gradually deepened. At length, she was for a moment almost entirely obscured, when she shone out again, with a brilliancy increased by the contrast I saw plainly on the path before me, from around which at this spot the trees receded, leaving a small space of green sward, the shadow of a large hand, with knotty joints and protuberances here and there. Especially, I remarked, even in the midst of my fear, the bulbous points of the fingers. I looked hurriedly all around, but could see nothing from which such a shadow should fall. Now, however, that I had a direction, however undetermined in which to project my apprehension, 
The very sense of danger and need of action overcame that stifling which is the worst property of fear. I reflected in a moment that if this were indeed a shadow, it was useless to look for the object that cast it in any other direction than between the shadow and the moon. I looked and peered and intensified my vision, all to no purpose. I could see nothing of that kind, not even an ash tree in the neighbourhood. Still the shadow remained, not steady, but moving to and fro. And once I saw the fingers close and grind themselves close, like the claws of a wild animal, as if in uncontrollable longing for some anticipated prey. There seemed but one mode left of discovering the substance of this shadow. I went forward boldly, though with an inward shudder, which I would not heed, to the spot where the shadow lay, threw myself on the ground, laid my head within the form of the hand, and turned my eyes towards the moon. Good heavens! What did I see? I wondered that ever I arose, and that the very shadow of the hand did not hold me where I lay until fear had frozen my brain. I saw the strangest figure, vague, shadowy, almost transparent in the central parts, and gradually deepening in substance towards the outside, until it ended in extremities capable of casting such a shadow as fell from the hand, through the awful fingers of which I now saw the moon. The hand was uplifted in the attitude of a paw about to strike its prey, but the face which throbbed with fluctuating and pulsatory visibility, not from changes in the light it reflected, but from changes in its own conditions of reflecting power. The alterations being from within, not from without. It was horrible. I do not know how to describe it. It caused a new sensation. Just as one cannot translate a horrible odour, or a ghastly pain, or a fearful sound into words. So I cannot describe this new form of awful hideousness. I can only try to describe something that is not it, but seems somewhat parallel to it, or at least is suggested by it. It reminded me of what I had heard of vampires, for the face resembled that of a corpse more than anything else I can think of, especially when I conceive such a face in motion but not suggesting any life as a source of the motion. The features were rather handsome than otherwise, except the mouth, which had scarcely a curve in it. The lips were of equal thickness, but the thickness was not at all remarkable, even although they looked slightly swollen. They seemed fixedly open, but were not wide apart. Of course, I did not remark these liniments at the time. I was too horrified for that. I noted them afterwards, when the form returned on my inward sight with the vividness too intense to admit of my doubting the accuracy of the reflex. But the most awful of the features were the eyes. These were alive, yet not with life. They seemed lighted up with an infinite greed, a gnawing voracity, which devoured the devourer, seemed to be the indwelling and propelling power of the whole ghostly apparition. 
I lay for a few moments simply imbruted with terror, when another cloud obscuring the moon delivered me from the immediately paralysing effects of the presence to the vision of the object of horror. While it added the force of imagination to the power of fear within me, inasmuch as, knowing far worse cause for apprehension than before, I remained equally ignorant from what I had to defend myself, or how to take any precautions. It might be upon me in the darkness any moment. I sprang to my feet and sped I knew not whither, only away from the spectre. I thought no longer of the path, and often narrowly escaped dashing myself against a tree in my headlong flight of fear. Thank you. That was the end of the first part of Chapter 4 of Fantasties, A Fairy Romance for Men and Women by George MacDonald. This has been Kevin Green, reading for the Hot Cocoa Club. Please join me again for the concluding part of Chapter 4. Thank you. Goodbye.